So I'm at my parents' house, and I'm watching the Cowboys loot play. I'm watching the Cowboys play, and uh, my niece, who's like two or three years old, uh, comes downstairs and nestles herself right into my side, which is a little strange because uh, her dad is clean-shaven. So with me and my beard, like, it always threw her off. I'd come visit. It would take her like six hours to warm up to me. And just as she warmed up to me, I'd be saying bye, right? So here she comes. She nestles into me. And I'm just like, okay, I mean, I don't mind getting snuggles from my niece, right? And I'm like, no, there's something off here. And so I look at Emmy, and I'm like, Emmy, what are you doing down here? Oh, I just want to spend time with you, Uncle Franco. And I'm like, uh-huh. And I'm like, so, um... Did mom say you could watch TV? Uh-huh. Should I ask her? No. <laughs> right? And so here's my little two, three-year-old niece thinking she's pulling one over on me, right? No, no, don't go, don't go talk to mom about that, right? And so as cute as she was, right, I caught Emmy in a lie, right? And so even from a young age, right, we see this, this reality of sinful nature that we possess. And so as Pastor Stephen alluded to earlier, today I get to tell everyone here just how awful we really are. Nothing better than talking about sin and our sinful nature and how without Jesus we are simply terrible. I saw a note on Pastor Stephen's desk and it said, ask the least liked pastor to preach this message. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. And so, while it's true that God is love and we believe his all-sufficient grace abounds, the reality is this, we need to understand the nature of sin in order to understand the gospel. We need to understand the nature of sin in order to understand the gospel. Um, This morning, I'm going to sound a little bit like an auctioneer, so try and stay with me, okay? So... This morning, we're going to consider what sin is, how it came into the world, and then we're going to examine a specific passage that will help us grasp sin's presence and effects in people's lives. Now, the Assemblies of God's statement on sin is called the fall of man and states, man was created good and upright. For God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. However, man, by voluntary transgression, fell and thereby incurred not only physical death, but also spiritual death, which is separation from God. So first, what is sin? Sin is disobedience to God. It's a failure to obey his law. In 1 John 3, 4, we read this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is failure to acknowledge God, to recognize the goodness of his ways and trust him with obedience. Romans 1.28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Sin is not just external, based on our action, but it's also internal, based on our thoughts and attitudes. God is not just concerned that you would keep a set of rules but that your heart would be right before him and that your obedience would flow from love for God. And so where did sin come from? The AG doctrinal statement on the fall of man emphasizes God's intentions for us were good. We were made in his image. 
This refers not only to our rationality and morality, but especially to our ability to relate to God and the purposes he gave humanity to rule over physical creation on his behalf. In Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what does this mean? It means that sin, wickedness, Pain, grief, they were not God's intentions for creation. Humanity fell. We fell through voluntary transgression. And we see this in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Now, the the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they disobeyed God. They believed they had a better plan for themselves than God did. They believed they could become something God didn't intend them to be. They turned their back on the evidence that God loved them, cared for them, and wanted their best, and instead chose what promoted their pride and selfishness. Now, their sin, it didn't result from a necessity. It resulted from free choice. Because we have free choice, rebellion is one of the natural consequences. It has nothing to do with God causing or compelling. It is choice, and Eve made a choice that resulted in death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And their sin, it also resulted in natural evil or the corruption of creation. We see this in the death and decay in nature, and their sin resulted in the sin nature that we now experience. Like I said, The sin nature that I got to see in Emmy Grace at two and three years old, all she wanted to do was watch TV, but the only way she knew to do it was one, snuggle up to Franco, and two, say, please don't check with mom whether I should watch TV or not. Why? She had something that she wanted, even though she knew what mom had said was right. And so death spreads to all men with the result that 
all sinned. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then we see with David that he recognized this inclination and inevitability of sin is present from birth. Psalm 51.5, listen to how warm and fuzzy this is. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Nice and fuzzy, right? We all feel nice and warm now. Sin is pervasive in all human beings. There is no part of our lives that is unaffected by sin. None. There is no part of our lives that is unaffected by sin. And so that's a bit about the background of sin. But now we need to talk about what sin looks like in real life and how it affects people. If we think that sin is just a single act that people do, then it can be difficult to understand why the Bible talks so much about it. More than that, it can be confusing as to why God would send people to hell over it. So what's the big deal with sin? We're going to focus on Romans 1, 18 to 32 for the rest of the message to help us understand. As we walk through the rest of the message, you'll see the scripture uh, baked into what I'm sharing. But again, the passage is Romans 1, 18 through 32. And so our third point today is this, people suppress the truth. Emmy suppressed a little bit of truth with me, right? People suppress the truth. Romans 1.17 says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It is the good news that you can be clean, forgiven, free, and right with God, and God wants you to be. Can I get an amen there? Amen. But the conflict in the, in the plot is that the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had to encounter a truth you had no desire to face. And in your desire to not face this truth, you try to drown your sorrow in alcohol or you foolishly got involved in a rebound relationship or you went out and spent money frivolously. The very things that we claim will make us free, that we chase in the hope of fulfillment and that we claim are true are actually a suppression of truth. We pursue unrighteousness and by it hold back, repress, push down, hide from the truth of God that can save us and set us free. Paul says in verses 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. When you look at the stars, contemplate time. You stand on the top of a mountain or you look out at the endless waves from a beach. Questions about meaning, purpose, and where all of this came from inevitably arise. The more we learn about our world and the universe, the more this proves true. 
The point that Paul makes in this passage is not that creation reveals so much of God that he can be fully known or that people would understand salvation through it. Rather, by contemplating nature, we can see there needs to be some explanation for all of this and that the most reasonable explanation is an incredibly powerful, intelligent being outside of the physical universe. So people are without excuse Paul's point here is that although the reality of God should be obvious to people, they push that truth down. How do they do that? Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is where we get to the heart of unrighteousness. Paul tells us in verse 21 that the primary sin, the unrighteousness that lies beneath all others is that although we know God, we reject God as God. But we cannot live without purpose or meaning. So we put something in his place. We make substitutes to suppress the truth we know about God. We substitute creature for creator, and we exchange the glory of our creator for an illusion of our own. We worship created things because we have so far suppressed the truth that we have convinced ourselves there's nothing behind these things. We don't stop to think that since there is a God, there may be a way in which he designed us to thrive. Instead, we just do what we want, making sex, our jobs, our hobbies, our passions, and our pleasures the idols of our lives. But as we pursue these things, as we pursue these things to try and bring purpose back to the futility of our lives, we cram the truth about God further and further down. We take the very thing that could save us and we push it down. Further and further, out of our own conscience, our foolish hearts are darkened and we are our own worst enemies. Because ultimately, this is what the suppression of this truth leads to. Sin gets what it deserves. Sin gets what it deserves. Maybe you've heard the saying, like, they deserve each other, right? <laughs> no, no one. I saw Rich laugh, so I know at least one person's with me, right? But maybe two people that you're not so high on and they get together and you're like, oh, well, <laughs> they deserve each other, right? Sin gets what it deserves. That's essentially what Paul says concerning unrighteousness and sin. He started in verse 18 by telling us that the wrath of God is revealed against sin. But now listen to verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up 
to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Can I just take a second that it's kind of humorous to me. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and then we get this phrase, disobedient to parents. <laughs> right? So we have like all these deep, heavy, evil descriptions, and then God's like, oh yeah, disobedient to parents as well. Which I'm like, listen, maybe you're one of the few that you're like, okay, those evil descriptions didn't apply to me. I promise disobedient to parents applied to you at one point in time. It applied to Emmy at two years old. We see the sinful nature. It is present from birth. It is undeniable. And in this passage, we don't just get these deep, dark, heavy, evil labels we also get something as simple as disobedient to parents reflects this sinful nature. So if you were sitting here so far going, ah, this sermon doesn't apply to me, newsflash, it does, right? So people suppress the truth by unrighteousness, and the consequence is that God allows them to continue in that unrighteousness. He lets them decide against him. That's the price of love. Love could not be love if God created us only to love him. Did you follow me on that one? Right? We have to choose to love God. We cannot be created simply wired to love God and say that we love God because that's not love. Love is the ability to choose whether we're going to obey God or not. Therefore, the price of love is that we have this freedom of choice. If he's going to have creatures that love him freely, then he gives them freedom to reject him. God gives people over to their self-deceit. They choose not to honor him as God or receive life as a gift from him and instead to pursue the creature rather than the creator. If you reject God, then he allows you to further and further remove yourself from the source of love and light and goodness and beauty and purpose and glory that is God. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis described this process by saying that those who choose unrighteousness enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. In verses 24 and 25, he begins by describing how God gives us up in the lust of our hearts to impurity. And so we begin to use our bodies in ways that he never intended. The impurity that Paul is talking about is primarily sexual impurity. As in our society, sexual immorality was rampant in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day. Since the sexual revolution in our own culture, it's not just that people commit acts of sexual immorality, rather, sex is a god or goddess in our culture. We place its images along our highways, mix it into our inter entertainment, and we idolize those who abuse it most. We worship the creation, sex, rather than the God who created it, which leads to the misuse of our bodies and the abuse of the bodies of others. 
We chase it as if it alone can fulfill us to the point that we have promoted the idea that you can even change your sex based on how you feel. There is no doubt we have made an idol of sex, teaching it in our public education, elevating and honoring promiscuity, and labeling anyone who would suggest that sexuality is not meant to be expressed except within marriage as a prude or a bigot. But that's not the end of it. Verses 26 and 27 describe the continuation of this spiral. As society claims that open sexuality is only natural, we move further and further away from what is truly natural. In these verses, Paul says that both women and men gave up natural relations. By natural, what he means is the way that God intended sexuality to be expressed. Now, there's no doubt Paul is talking about homosexual sex in these verses. In fact, the translation, men and women, disguises that Paul was using two less common words here that are better translated, male and female. He was drawing on the creation story from Genesis 1 when God made male and female. So Paul is talking about biological sex, not just gender, Further, he is not just speaking about homosexual relationships that are abusive or non-consensual. Some claim that he was only referring to a type of relationship of a man and a young boy, which was common in his day and which is certainly included, but there is no evidence that women were involved in it. And since Paul refers to lesbianism in verse 26, we can rule that theory out. So why does Paul use homosexuality as an example? Probably because it was the most straightforward example of doing what is contrary to nature. His whole argument had been that people suppress the obvious truth about God. Paul considered the biology of male and female as obvious an example of God's intention for his creation as you could get. But people even suppress the truth here. It's important for us to pause and remember that Paul wrote this about his own culture. It certainly applies in ours, but it was written about the culture he was observing. We need to remember that because if we don't, we may begin to think that the gospel will not be effective here. But that's not true. Because what did the author of Ecclesiastes say? There is nothing new under the sun. If Paul could proclaim good news in that culture, the good news will also be effective in ours, and that's great news. The good news that he preached then is still effective in this day and culture today, and that's why we exist as a church, to be a stanchion for the truth of the gospel, the truth that sets free, and the truth that transforms from death to life in Jesus Christ good news because all manners of unrighteousness leads to a simple revelation. It is all caused by hearts that are rebellious against God. And this rebelliousness, listen to what it does. It leads to people not only committing these sins, but then they turn around and they give approval to others who do them as well. It's not just people who start committing these sins, but it leads to giving approval to others who do them as well. 
In a society that approves sin, up is transformed to down, and the most loving course, the one which points out error and leads to truth, becomes the one course which you must not take. Pointing out sin itself becomes the unpardonable sin while everything else is promoted and celebrated. Practice your religion, but don't say we've sinned. Think whatever crazy thoughts you want inside your church. Don't bring that message out here. Don't you dare suggest that there may be things that ought not to be done, that are shameful and obviously so. Believe what you will, but don't try to put your truth on me. Newsflash, there is no such thing as my truth or your truth. Jesus was grace and truth, and he came to us to be the ultimate revelation of truth that we can stand on, that is timeless, and that is unchanging, so that no matter what society says, truth can become, no, Jesus, he took on flesh and he became the embodiment of truth. And because he became the embodiment of truth, we can have the boldness to speak it. And so the consequence of our unrighteousness is that we move further and further away from our creator and therefore from meaningful lives. We are debased and futile in our thinking And the more fulfillment that we chase through our sinful actions, the less satisfaction we can get. This is the spiral of degradation and this is the wrath of God against sin. We're all caught in it. We are all born with this sinful nature, this predisposition to care about ourselves more than about God. You need to understand the nature of unrighteousness in order to understand the gospel. People suppress the truth by denying God, and God gives them up to the debasement of sin. The fundamental form of unrighteousness is that people do not honor God or give him thanks. They live as if he is not there. They take life for granted. They presume upon the patience and kindness of God. They chase what God has created rather than worshiping and serving him. Is that how you've been living? Have you been taking your life for granted, not remembering that it is God who gives you life and life can only be fulfilled in him? Have you given thought to his glory and how you should use your life to honor him? Or have you been living primarily to bring honor to yourself? Are you caught in the degrading spiral of sin, moving further and further into a meaningless existence the more you deny God and try to live without his interference? I have a picture of sinful nature I want to share with you today. In fact, I would even call it a a beautiful picture. Whoa, (laughs) Sounds a little scandalous, right? Here, take a look at this picture of sinful nature. (laughs) Yeah, that's my seven-month-old daughter up there. For the complicated pregnancy that Jackie had with Riley, there was one thing Riley did before she was even born that I was so grateful for. You see, Riley, for basically the entire pregnancy, was breech. Jackie and I had talked about how if Riley was not breech, then Jackie would think about a natural delivery, 
But with Riley being breached, it took any decision-making out of the question. The only solution was that she be delivered through C-section. In case you don't know, breach means that her head is in the wrong direction, which is why natural delivery isn't an option. And so again, by, bring, by being breach, there was only one way for Riley to be delivered to ensure that she lived. The reality is, for as innocent and pure and perfect as we see babies, they are born with a sinful nature. We all are born with a sinful nature. In fact, let me put it this way, we're all born spiritually breach. We are all born headed in the wrong direction. But the good news is this, though life may start with us headed in the wrong direction, there is someone who changes that. There is someone whose name is Jesus and the solution he offers to correct our spiritual breach is what? To be born again. And the reason I bring this up as our closing is this. It's easy to hear claims of, well, it's not fair that I'm born this way. I didn't make that decision. Eve made that decision. It's not fair that I'm born with this predisposition that leads me to hell rather than heaven, but I've got news for you. As unfair as that might sound, the greatest injustice ever born in history was Jesus when he hung on that cross and when he died on that cross for me and for you. Your life might be headed in a spiritual direction. You might be listening today saying, yes, that's me. It's hard for me to choose the things of God. I want you to know, until you know God and his love for you, it'll be impossible for you to choose the things of God. But once you do, behold, the old has passed and now the new has come. There is a new life that we can have in Jesus. And as unfair as it sounds that we were born spiritually breached and headed in the wrong direction, Jesus ensures, his deliverance ensures that we have eternal life with him and not without him. He has sent the Holy Spirit into my heart to purify. There's a powerful promise that we can hold on to in Jesus that says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's unraveling ungodly desires, straightening and undividing. I am not pure in heart through my own action, but by faith. Today, I am pure by faith. Today, if you don't know Jesus, you can make the decision that makes you white as snow. Sin might have left a crimson stain, but his blood washes white as snow. It's not a platitude. I'm not saying that I'm pure, even though I'm not really pure. I'm saying that by my dependence on Christ, my purity in the past is secured and I am forgiven and my purity today is enabled by the spirit of Christ within me. Are you tired of living a divided life? That could end today. 
Do you see that you're caught in a downward spiral of rebellion against God, that his wrath has been revealed in your life because you keep getting further and further from him? Do you know you are powerless to help yourself, but today, through no doing of your own, you realize that he's drawing you to him in spite of your rebellion? As much as you may have chosen rebellion in the past, it can all change by saying, I choose Christ today. All it takes is that one choice. And understand this, even in your rebellion and even in your unfaithfulness, God loves you. And it's because he loves you that today you have the opportunity to say, Lord, I recognize that love and so I'm choosing that love because I realize the price that you paid to redeem the price that I would never be able to pay to be restored to right relationship with you. God loves you, and he loves you so much that he allowed you to choose to rebel against him. He wants you to love him freely, but he also loved you enough to send Jesus Christ to die for you. The greatest injustice in human history, Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin when he died on the cross, and he offers forgiveness and renewed relationship with God if you will depend on him. That means that you put away all of your rebellion and you depend on Jesus. Could I ask you a favor this morning? Could you all close your eyes? The question today is really simple. If you know you haven't been depending on Jesus as you should, to grow in depending on Jesus. Would you raise your hand this morning? Maybe you're here and you've never made that decision to depend on Jesus. I want you to know that he's faithful and that he's available. If that's you this morning and you're saying for the first time, I'm going to choose Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I don't want to keep choosing sin. I don't want to keep choosing rebelliousness. I'm ready to choose the abundant life in Jesus. If that's you, would you raise your hand this morning? Thank you for that hand. Church, would you mind standing with me? I'm going to pray, close our service, but I want to invite you that if you want to respond, if you want prayer, our pastors and prayer partners will be up front and we'd love nothing more than just to be able to join with you and to help you make concrete the choice that you're making today, which is I no longer choose rebellion, but I choose the new life and the abundant life that Jesus has for me. But let's close in prayer together. Lord, thank you that even when I'm distant, and far from you, and continually choosing not you, you choose to still love me. That your love and grace is readily available. And so Lord, I say thank you for that. But Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray for those who right now, they know there's a tug of war going on in their heart. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister in them, to them, Lord, that you would help all of us to continually choose you. To continually seek you. To continually hunger and thirst after you. So that as we do, 
the flesh with its passions and desires may be crucified so that we may have the resurrected, spirit-filled life that you made available by dying on the cross and rising again. And so, Lord, we just say thank you. Be with us now as we go. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'd like prayer, there will be pastors and prayer partners forward. If not, have a great rest of your day.